You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For. Happy Wednesday, everyone. This episode is brought to you from the West Coast of Canada, from rainy Vancouver. This is the podcast to inspire unconventional careers and is a part of OMD Ventures, my general media platform. If you'd like to stay up to date with everything else that I'm doing, please subscribe to the newsletter where I share the weekly podcast, essays, newsletters, and the exclusive stuff on what I actually do every week and how my journey has been progressing. If you are interested to follow along, please subscribe to the newsletter. That's how you can get closer with the community and myself. If you want to support the podcast separately, I think the best way to do it is to just share episodes that you like with a friend. I think that's the best way, and hopefully that's how I can reach a greater audience and maybe help more lives in the process as well. That'd be awesome. All right, so today's conversation is with Alex Castellani. He is the co-owner and co-owner of Boxer Social, and he is also a veteran coffee professional. He does everything from consulting to cafe design. And just it's like he just knows everything about coffee, really. Boxcar Social is a cafe and bar with four locations in Toronto and one in Halifax. And it is one of my go-to places for some really light and acidic coffee. I think they do an amazing job there. And I, fi- I personally find that their locations have this warm ambiance that I really like. And it kind of soothes me, especially for the wintry periods in Toronto when it kind of gets a little dark outside. And it's kind of also one of my favorite places to have meetings with other folks. Like I used when I was in consulting, I used to have a lot of my coffee meetings there in the Temperance location because it's kind of a hidden away somewhere. So you kind of get a lot more privacy. So yeah, check out, check it out. Check out all the other locations that they have. I've been to a couple of them, and they're definitely awesome. And so. Alex's background is that he got he started out in um, business in university and then he got a philosophy degree. But instead of embarking on the path of being an academic, that which is what he intended to initially, he ended up going full head into coffee and having building that into a career through some fateful encounters from living in Vancouver to taking a break from school. And we talk about this kind of whole process in the podcast as well. We also talk about his journey of building and growing Boxer Social with his three other partners, the state of coffee in Canada, as well as the whole kind of coffee chain, coffee like value chain and more. So this was actually, it actually gets kind of deep and technical. Um, and it's been very informative for me in, in terms of understanding, I think, the kind of whole landscape, not just as an industry in Canada, but also just how to think about beans, how to think about how all these kind of various chemical and scientific things affect coffee taste it was quite profound really and we also touch upon the tactical side as well as the philosoph- the philosophical side in the world of coffee it kind of makes sense given Alex's background in philosophy but we also touch upon the food industry as boxcar is also a cafe and a bar and also expanding into the restaurant uh, business as well for some of their locations and we also talk about entrepreneurship as well since Alex has trans- transitioned into being an entrepreneur from being a consultant before. It was truly, truly a blast to chat with Alex, and I really hope you find it as enjoyable as I did. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Alex. Alex. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to Count It For. Today on the podcast, I have Alex Castellani. Alex here is the co-owner of Boxcar Social and the producer of the Hum podcast, that's spelled H-U-M. But he is also, I would say, a professional in all things coffee, from being a judge in coffee contests to being a consultant and also being involved in like, cafe design. So Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and so when we first begin off, um, can you kind of explain to our audience you know, how you would describe Boxcar Social as a cafe and a bar. Um, right now, what I'm familiar with is, is that the company has five locations, one in Halifax, four in Toronto. But mm-hmm. you know, what sets you guys apart as like a cafe and bar? It's true. It's always a concern for us that someone could walk into a Boxcar Social location and, and look at the menu and feel for a moment. And we hope this is not the case. You know, we obviously... Uh, my partners and I, we put a lot of effort into in, in designing and building the places, which we do ourselves. All the design and, and all the construction um, is done ourselves. Yet, it's still the case, because we don't want to completely alienate anybody who walks into a boxcar, that someone could walk into a boxcar location and still feel like we're a cafe, you know? Uh, but, but there are things that I think importantly differentiate us. Uh, Boxcar, as much as it is a retail location, it is a, f- a few retail locations now, it, it was also a cultural project. It, when we started Boxcar uh, back in 2014, I was consulting for different cafes. I was at a point in my career where I had spent so much of my time, at that, so much of my adult life at that point, conceiving of what an ideal cafe would look like. Forget about ideal. Don't even have to go there. Just think of someone who, as someone who loved coffee, who loved coffee culture, who is unbelievably motivated by where the coffee industry was moving um, throughout, you know, the aughts. I, I had things that I wanted in this industry. I had a, a, approaches that would manifest in, in retail locations that I desired as a coffee consumer, as a coffee nerd, whatever, you know, as someone who is invested in the field, both working in it and as a recipient uh, of coffee culture in a place. Toronto at that time, I believed, was was missing many things. The coffee industry in general, and still is. You know, obviously, Boxcar is not the answer to, to all of that, but, but it's certainly what I hope is, you know, our contribution to the field to a field that we work in, that we contribute to, and again, that we're recipients of. Uh, and what that is, it, we're more a couple of things, right? So, so one thing that Boxcar is was an ability to bring in and showcase some of the best coffee around the world. That, that phrase can be kind of obnoxious, best coffee, because according to who? It, one thing you learn very quickly in the coffee industry is that it's a, it's a very segmented and divisive industry. Many people have opinions about what is great coffee, Many people are self-purported connoisseurs, <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, whatever they call themselves. Um, but within this kind of subsect of the coffee industry, what people, some people call third-wave coffee, some people call specialty coffee, there are amazing roasters and amazing producers that weren't being showcased in this city. Boxcar was an opportunity to build uh, a place to showcase these people and their work. Yeah, I think when I, my first time at a Boxcar location was actually at the the one in Temperance. Mm-hmm. 
I, I found it to be a great location where it has, uh, you know, I think I've been to multiple Barcelona locations and they, I think, share the warmth of ambiance, but the temperance one, because I think of its kind of nature of location behind, like, inside this alleyway, mm. there's kind of this secluded feeling, which I enjoyed having, like, meetings there. With. It's so interesting and, that you went to that location as well because it's our newest location in Toronto, but it's also located in that side of Temperance, you know, the east side of Temperance Street, which is, you know, literally had a Batman scene filmed in there because it resembles Gotham City so much. It's mm. so, it's so dank. Um, and that's kind of thematic for Boxcar a little bit. Like, we open in kind of unconventional locations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have any locations in kind of hipstery West End neighborhoods. Uh, we, I mean, the East End location is probably the closest one because, honestly, that area of Riverside and Leslieville has historically for Toronto's specialty coffee scene been a hub of, of specialty coffee. But otherwise, Summerhill, I mean, Summerhill, when we opened there, there was very little in terms of retail food or drink at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Temperance Harbor Front was another one that is, uh, there's, there's still to this day so little by the water. Uh, and I think we like that. We also live in a city, you know, we forget about that. It's, especially when you start talking about topics identifying as business people or caring about business, looking at opportunities in business. We, we often don't frame it as not just business people, but residents, mm. citizens, people who live in a place and experience a place's culture. We talk about the word culture a lot, but we don't peg that down to the daily experience of living in a place. And we have a waterfront in Toronto. We're a waterfront city. No one ever describes Toronto that way because our waterfront is, has been historically not a livable place, really. There are so many plans now, and, and we hope that they go in the right direction to facilitate the harbor fund being more livable, more exciting, you know, the desirable place for people in Toronto to go, not just tourists. But we'll see we'll see what direction that takes. But Boxcar was also an opportunity to to find those opportunities, you know? Yeah, and it's it's funny you bring it up because look, you know, um I was very happy that Boxcar opened up the location on Harbor Front just because mm-hmm. I live so close to it and it's just is the place for myself to go to in the summers and it's actually been um an amazing place to just enjoy the harbor front because mm. there's a coffee shop there that, that I can actually go to instead of, I'd say, you know, other kind of chain coffee shops that I don't really enjoy mm. the typical black coffee brew of. Um, but I think one really set me apart for Boxer when I first went was I noticed Phil and Sebastian beans mm. on the counter. And I had lived in Calgary for a little bit. And so I was a big fan of the Phil and Sebastian roasters. And no other coffee shop in Toronto I felt had any. And then when I saw it at Boxer, I was like, oh, okay. These guys have beans that I know of that yeah. not many people seem to, and that's very rare. I think these guys very care a lot about different yeah. kinds of roasters. For sure. They're those signals, right? You yeah, look yeah, in, yeah. you walk into a coffee shop, you look for particular equipment, you look for particular roasters, and you, you use those signals to kind of judge whether someone whether their coffee shop is desirable from a program level and from a commitment level to a, a degree of quality, whether it's somewhere you want to drink coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, Harborfront was extremely challenging, though. That was our I, that was our by far most challenging location. How so? It's very large, number one, and the other one is that it's has a full food program. You know, it has it has a 
full lunch program, it has a full dinner program. We were these guys that were opening 30 seat coffee shops and bars, you know, wine bar, beer bar, whiskey bar, feel cozy, um, could be managed by a, a bartender, uh, two baristas. And then we get this opportunity at the harbor front, which is extremely exciting for all the reasons I, I mentioned earlier. We, we want within our capacity and within our skill and within our vision to contribute to Toronto culture. And the moment we get this opportunity at the harbor front, uh, yeah, of course we jumped on it. And you do this thing where, you know, like any, any, any challenges, there's an unbelievable naivete here, but any challenges, you can, you can surmount them. You can figure it out as you go. Running a restaurant and running a cafe are very different things. <laughs> you learn that really hard and fast. We learned that the hard way with Harbor Fun. Um, managing a kitchen team, not being people who have worked in kitchens. I can manage cafes. I've worked in cafes. I've managed cafes. I've, I've worked in many different positions in the coffee industry. I haven't been that person in the restaurant industry, you know, in kitchens. And so your capacity to just kind of deal with everything. And, and we had set our locations up that way as well, right? I mean, I, I, I love, I actually love construction. I love building. I love design. So taking on as much as you quite frankly can in building a place and setting a place up and running a place. You confront those limitations very quickly when, when the demands of a, of a location outpace your ability to you know, expand your skills. I couldn't just leave at that point. That was our third location. I could, it's not like I could leave and go to culinary school. I would, I would have loved to in a different life, you know? Like, I, I think that would have been extremely exciting. I love cooking. Um, I engage very seriously with the food industry, certainly now more than ever. But, but even back then, but it wasn't within our capacity at that point. And so, not to mention running front of house, setting up systems for table service. We, that was a, that was a challenging time. And, 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 those were some hard failures in terms of meeting our expectations of quality, quality of product, quality of service. It's really challenging to have a program like Boxcar to, to be so strident with the quality of product and execution and then to watch it in real time, fail to meet those expect expectations constantly and not have the tools or capacity to fix it. Mm -hmm. That was difficult. I'm happy to say now, years later, that I, you know that location's running <laughs> incredibly better and, um, and much more smoothly. There's still work to do, of course, with everything. With everything we do, there's much room for improvement. Um, but but that was a really challenging project. Yeah, it reminds me of the the Mike Tyson quote where he says, "Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mike Tyson nailed it. Yeah. And, I'm wondering, is there is there a particular moment or an instance where it really brought to question of, wow, can we actually really do this when you're opening the harbor front location? There was no question of whether we can really do it. We didn't have a choice. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, That's the thing. When you commit yourself to these projects, you're not just committing yourself. You're committing many people. But you also are locking in 
the industry. And we forget about like how much you represent an industry, how much you represent a field. Specialty coffee, we're still fighting in specialty coffee to, to get buy-in from people, for people to not think we're full of shit, you know, for people to not think that we're some kind of bearded, mustache twirling, suspender wearing, you know, rude behind bar, self-important manifestation, you know, caricature of specialty coffee that everything tastes like lemons and, you know, like we were still fighting to, to break that stigma. The problem is that we caused it to begin with, right? Mm. We also have to take responsibility for, for how we're viewed. And so it's, it's why I get so frustrated every time there's a bad copy that goes out because those are opportunities to get buy-in for what we do. Things have to be delicious. I don't think that, and I believe that it can be. It's not a, it's not a construct. You know, it's not these contrivances that, 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 okay, we've got to convince people that this thing is good. We really deep down believe that this way of approaching coffee is more sustainable, that it's more responsible, that it tastes better and it's more interesting. And that drives everything. Because if you believe those things deep down and they're informed not by self-interest because you have a business and that business has to survive and for it to survive, people have to believe those things. To make sure that you're critical, self-critical enough to engage with these questions and, and, and find those answers separate of your self-interest and let that form what your self-interest is. Now, now, then you have a recipe for something that's way more powerful to drive your action and motivations. And so, you know, that's of course why when we fail in, in having a quality product, and by quality, we always have quality product, we only bring in really great coffee, but we can really mess up in manifesting, <laughs> in, 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 you know, bringing to people what that quality can be, meeting its potential. Um, it's not easy. Yeah, we can start with really delicious coffee in terms of its potential and, and, and not meet it um, because it's still to this day technologically and, and from a process perspective, very difficult to get coffee to taste, you know, as good as it could possibly taste. Mm. Way easier than it was, I'll say that. Um, but, yeah. It's, it's very evident from, you know, the way you describe um, your approach to product and I think even from as you you're telling the story, just kind of the dedication to making sure that everything's as close to perfect as possible. Um, it makes me wonder, is, was that something that was kind of drilled as like uh, part of your psyche as you were like growing up? Um, was that something that was always part of your childhood go- mm, growing that's up? A, that's an interesting question. Um, no, as close to perfect. You know, that, that's, that, that phrase is challenging, as close to perfect as possible, right? Mm. What, is, what does that mean? What is, what is perfection when it comes to when it comes to not knowing what that form is, mm-hmm. there there are um, dictated standards for what we would call perfect, I guess, with some manifestations of of forms that we engage with. But if someone says the perfect coffee, what does that mean? You know, I, I would I would wholly reject that that characterization of any coffee is perfect. What has made Boxcar exist to begin with, what has made this project viable, and I think what our vision is based on is this necessary multiplicity of 
of manifesting quality or or a high standard, right? Um, it's not like we can, you know, Kenyan coffee is the best coffee, and and uh, it has to taste like this when it's the best. No, it's just necessarily like Kenyan coffee in and of itself has such a plethora of manifestations of flavor and there are undesirable characteristics within that but there are also many desirable ones and within the many is 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 the excitement that's the drive not only within a single coffee but from a single coffee year to year there's been a coffee that we've served almost every year since we started boxcar um coffee from george howell in boston George Howell is an incredibly important coffee roaster. He's contributed so much to the coffee industry. Um, and he, in being an older guy <laughs> and having this company for a long time, has built relationships over long periods of time. It's important to think about that. Working with coffee producers for decades. It's quite remarkable. And one of these coffees, Mamuto, it's a single estate Kenyan coffee. And we taste that coffee every year, and every year it's different. The first year we had it, the 2013 harvest of it, was mind-blowingly good. It was like blackberry syrup. It was so sweet, so explosively aromatic and expressive. And I'd be lying to you if I said that every time I taste that coffee, I chase that particular profile. But every year since 2013 has been different. And I love that. I mean, cool, if that coffee tasted the exact same every year, it would be delicious. But there's something unbelievably exciting in the fact that every harvest is this completely different manifestation of all of the variables that contribute to what that coffee tastes like. Climate variables, processing variables, and difference in, in how that fermentation took place for the coffee. All of these things are going to utterly change the profile of the coffee. And so, you know, like the 2015 harvest, I didn't like nearly as much. But I still served it. I still thought it was a delicious coffee. Let me just, let me just preface by saying that because um, it's important. I still want to be proud of what we're serving. But it was very different. Did it matter that it conformed to some idea of a perfect coffee? So long as it was tasty, so long as it was delicious... And so long as it was responsible, I don't think so. I think we, what we want is to become comfortable with this idea of not a single form of, of ideality or, or perfection. And we see this in the food industry as well, right? With food menus that used to just stay the same all year round. And you get the same thing. It didn't matter if it was December or June, you were getting the same food menu. You don't see that as much now. You get, the restaurants, certainly the restaurants that I love going to, they're ultra seasonal. They're finding in the difficulty of, you know, being in Toronto, um, they're finding what is in season. If it's not in season, it maybe was in season and is preserved. Uh, and their great chefs will do a, be able to put together amazing menus with that. Besides, coffee is a seasonal, is a seasonal product. We don't think about that, right? We think about coffee as something that just exists and tastes the same year round, but what coffees are on our menu are, are basically what coffees were harvested four months ago, four to six months ago. And fresher green coffee, 
coffee before it's been roasted generally tastes a lot better than coffee that's a year old. Oh, definitely. Pre-roasted. Pre <laughs> um, but there's a lot of old coffee out there. Oh, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't argue against that, yeah. But, but to go back to your original question, um, because it still is an important question, like, you know, you're, you're really asking, you know, were there things in my life that, that influenced this chase of, let's say, really high quality? Yeah, I, I, I still do. Uh, let me qualify my answer a little bit because I still do chase a degree of ideality in, in, in producing a coffee. Why would I pull, you know, why would I pull 20 espressos to try to calibrate that recipe if I wasn't? I'm still chasing something. I'm still chasing a form. I think how you build those forms, how you build those standards are, I think that's real. That, that journey, that, that pursuit is unbelievably important. I think people focus on the standards themselves. The standards can be imported. You see that there's a lot of received wisdom that exists in different fields and different industries. But really exercising how you build those standards, and this is across fields, this is across hobbies. Uh, you know, I I think that that's a really important initiative to take, and so. And in that, yes, I, I think I've always had, I have since I was a kid, always had very particular aesthetic taste. Mm -hmm. And that includes all sensory. I think I always self-identified as someone who engaged with what I was tasting, what I was smelling, what I was listening to, and certainly what I was looking at um, pretty acutely. Uh, I, I always had many opinions <laughs> expressed, not to say that they, they were always good opinions, but, but I, I think I always had high standards uh, and self-identified in that way. And no doubt that that ended up contributing um, very heavily into how I engaged with coffee mm -hmm. and, and the other things that I do, right? Because running this business hasn't just been about tasting and calibrating coffee. And I did, I did the photography for the, for the company for the first four years. Um, including, you know, still doing logo designs, floor, doing drawing floor plans, um, actually doing woodwork, wood construction. There are many skills as a business owner you end up exercising, having to exercise and wanting to exercise because many of these things are really fun for me. I love the fact that I get to do many of these things. But they involve many different judgments. And um, obviously the connectivity of these things is really important. Um, but each of their individual standards, each of these things have their own fields that exist. Uh, and each of those fields have, again, received wisdom, imported standards uh, of what is good, what is bad, uh, you know, what's good practice, what's bad practice. Really developing a sense of what that is. And then, of course, we haven't got to the point where you're actually working on the skills to be able to produce that. You know, makes, make something commensurate with those standards. But I think as a starting point is understanding how to develop those standards to begin with. Mm -hmm. And and that can be really challenging. It can be really challenging, especially when you go across fields, especially when you're a neophyte in, in so many things. Um, but but that's equally exciting. Yeah, and you know, before we actually did the recording we talked we we briefly talked about how there is the connecting of the dots with photography, mm -hmm. design, coffee mm -hmm. and but when, when I look at, um, I'd be curious to see how that kind of all, how the initial kind of the dots formed out when you studied, you know, business and philosophy yeah. back in Vancouver. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, if 
that did living in Vancouver at that time have any like influence on the I don't know maybe even like a seed of coffee just because I grew up in Vancouver mm-hmm. and it's a, they have a very vibrant uh, coffee scene mm-hmm, very there. much so a couple of things so I didn't study in Vancouver I actually studied in oh, yeah. Guelph but I oh, okay. but I did live in Vancouver back oh, in two thousand eight which is where so much of my motivation to actually turn my dedication you know turn my interest in coffee towards a career path came from truly um, that's for sure <laughs> but I studied in Guelph and and yeah I mean that I had a bit of an unconventional university career in studying business first and then getting my philosophy degree after so I got my business degree first and then went to philosophy you, you see many people maybe do the reverse of that right. um, I'm going to be extremely honest with you. I hated business studies. I found it um, completely incontextual, very bullshitty. It wasn't interdisciplinary, and and you can probably glean from my attitudes towards my towards the activities that I partake in, you know, towards the duties that I have, towards the business that we've constructed, and how I speak about it. That I I love, and I don't just love working in an interdisciplinary way. I don't, I don't just love importing many activities to accomplish something, um, many tasks, many skills. I think it's necessary. I think that looking at, I think that look at, looking at any field or uh, endeavor with it as a silo is detrimental to your ability to contribute to that field, to put your work into perspective, I think there's like a humanity that's lost in in treating human effort as this kind of technocracy. And I think that's what you end up with. Um, and so going back to university, you know, I did the business degree and I, I really didn't enjoy it. I really hated it. There were certain aspects of it that, you know, could pull motivation out of me. For some reason, I liked economics. I, I loved that kind of attempt, even though I will have a lot of criticism of it, to behaviorally explain um but while i was doing my business degree i I was reading voraciously and i was a late reader i i didn't grow up devouring books uh i didn't but i um by my by the end of my first year in university it's like a really odd bizarre time to discover reading (laughs) as a as a serious pastime um and i started to just devour books um and new ideas and perspectives and I think that alienated me from my business education a lot because as I was engaged in the pedagogy of, of you know, bachelors of commerce, it was so utterly incontextual. It, it, it failed so miserably at engaging with ideas of other fields and implications because of that. Um, and I saw that, in, in, in fact, even in terms of the limitations of my my colleagues at the time to to engage with to engage with difficult ideas and so i i didn't fit in super well within my business community i worked hard and and i contributed and i but even writing for example like business writing i just wasn't good at it (laughs) i just i maybe a little bit too much flourish or um trying trying stubbornly to to impose a degree of creativity that wasn't maybe warranted or desired um, within business. But when I went to my philosophy degree, I had such a great time. I had an amazing, I enjoyed that degree so much. I had some some really fantastic professors. Um, 
how did you uh how did you get into the mindset of switching to like after business to decide mm-hmm. i'm going to stay in school and actually study something else that i'm actually mm-hmm. interested in because i find many who at least my peers were mm-hmm. i came from a business degree background as well where they would you know consider this is an end of a chapter and mm-hmm. i have to do what i had studied yeah. um on just some cost fallacy and all that there but for you when you had the options there to then continue using the business degree with your life or choose not to but why did you end up choosing to go back to school it, it was an incredibly easy decision yeah i i was already so immersed i was already filling my electives with philosophy courses uh, and, and other things i was history courses as well. I, I was just really engaged with many academic pursuits at that time that were outside of business um and so i ended up overloading my course load and double counting some courses and so i was by the end of my business degree which i decided to finish because i was already like halfway through it when i started to really consider this option seriously i i already made moves to pursue a philosophy degree i was so in love with philosophy at that time and and i should say philosophy is a very broad field right my concentration where i was completely absorbed by this subfield of philosophy was the philosophy of science and it's a really um somewhat abstruse and not often spoken about field of philosophy it's not like ethics and metaphysics or uh, it pulls in many of these things it's epistemology it is ethics you know it is metaphysics but 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 it pulls in in this appropriately interdisciplinary way uh across philosophy many of these subfields and and so i just made moves to continue studying because i was it was like a whole new a whole new career in in university right i mean it was so different from business that i was i was just getting immersed in this new community and so i'm going to be honest with you by the end of my philosophy degree i i was pretty convinced that i was going to be in academia for the rest of my life because i i enjoyed it that much yeah and then while whilst having that conviction was that was that what led you to move to vancouver or no, how did no, that no. Have... Uh, um youth and impetuousness and and uh wanting to get away from you know growing up in the gta is what led me to vancouver yeah mm. I, it was nothing more than adventure <laughs> and how great that I got to discover um, a field that I'd spent my adult life working in and yeah. dedicating all my time to. And, and so I'm curious at that where, was it once again as simple as, you know, you choosing to partake in philosophy? Was it the desire for adventure uh, no. that much greater? No, it wasn't, it wasn't that simple actually. you're referring to me getting into coffee yeah um more more so before that just choosing to actually just go and go to vancouver um yeah i i think i'd always been adventurous i think i always yeah. loved to just put myself in uncomfortable situations and 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 travel without knowing anybody or having a plan and and so that i think that was just that was just me doing that yeah. okay and and so then now and going to coffee i think there you know um a lot of people working coffee shops as you know a part-time gig a lot of mm-hmm. kids do it during school mm-hmm. for you where how did that transition into even the thought of this could be a career well well it's interesting because 
it's different. It's not like I worked in coffee shops. And and in fact, if I bet you, if I was working in coffee shops in that time, just kind of to like pay my way through school, I was working construction. And that's, you know, I think I was, my dad has a small construction company and I was working alongside him, just working labor. Um, and I'm so thankful for that now because that's how I know how to woodwork. It's how I know how to do construction, which now that we have five places that we've built is came in really handy. At the time I was a stupid kid. Oh God, I, I, I still think about how petulant that was in being frustrated that I was working construction. I'm this, again, with all the sophomoric ideas of someone studying philosophy and, and engaging with really big ideas that are all consuming, but, um, can feel like the weight of the world and utterly frivolous at the same time, depending on who you talk to, I I would end up engaging in such a more profound way with the ability to um, do construction. To because what is what does that mean, right? I mean, it's, it means it means building something, it means materializing something. Uh, I don't do as much now outside of building, or helping build our locations do that kind of construction, but all of those skills with tools to build something. I love more fine woodworking and, and all of that got imported later on. But at the time I, I hated it. At the time I would complain and, and whine and um, uh, it's still, I still regret how, you know, my, my poor, my poor dad, I can't believe he didn't kick me out. <laughs> For those for that for that attitude and again that petulance, but um, but the coffee thing was different. I mean, I I moved to Vancouver and I lived there for a short while. And while I was there, Vancouver's coffee industry was very different than Toronto's. It was way more developed. It was in you know it was inheriting the Pacific Northwest coffee culture, Seattle and Portland, and um, there were companies back then like Wicked and and Forty Nine Parallel um, that you know, much younger back then. Um, and, and, and how fun to think that we still serve 49th parallel coffee now and then. Um, there's some continuity there, but that were so exciting. This, this sect of the coffee industry, this, it felt different. It was countercultural. It was a reaction to what many people call second wave coffee, which is kind of creating the moving coffee from a commodity, from a diner from instant coffee to cheap to convenient to a customer experience. Um, it was moving that to a focus on producers, to a focus on the barista, to a focus on craft, um, and arguably sowing the seeds to a focus on divergence and difference within coffee itself. And that's when we get to our conversation in the beginning about, about coffee not conforming to one standard of what's good or not um that was all starting to happen in vancouver and i just there was so much energy it, there was a lot of glamour i was a young i was a young guy and i i was impressionable and i, I was also completely taken as well with these how places were structured back then of having a the iconology of like a rock star barista right there are people that would go in and be like oh that's that's the guy or that's the girl and he or she makes the best coffee. You have to go in there, there, as they're pouring latte art and doing all these flashy things that right now I care less about. But back then I was 
utterly taken with. And so um, when I moved back to Ontario, I was still studying at the time, so I had to move back here. And I got this, I got my grandma's you know, old espresso machine you know, that she had brought over from Italy and it had been broken. I fixed it up and I remember having vice grips where the steam wand was because, <laughs> because I didn't have a handle. And I started steaming and practicing pouring milk and, and tasting coffee and um, just diving so deep and obsessively into into what ended up being my career, right? All the, the small skills. Um, I ended up going to New York and taking a coffee class. Um, I read obsessively on forums. I just fell into it so hard. While that was all happening, I was still studying philosophy. And I was still convinced I was going to be in academia. This just felt like a hobby. Now, when I go back and I see people from my university life, and they see where I've gone with my life, you know, that I've built a business in coffee, I go, how funny, you know, how funny that I ended up working in coffee. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you were always going to work in coffee. And I, I didn't think about that. Apparently, it was visible to everyone around me, but I was so, I was so also absorbed in the idea of, of pursuing a career in, in academia that I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it until I was finished my philosophy degree and I took a break. And then figured I'd get a job doing, because I could learn more and I could work with cool equipment and I could try more coffees. It just felt like a transitionary thing. And, and, and then when I did, there was no coming out apparently. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so when you, when you decide, decided during the break to work you know, with coffee, mm -hmm. what, did you pick any cafe that would take you or no, were I you very... I, I did the thing, no, I did the thing that, that, that we talked about earlier where I, I went into different cafes and I looked at their equipment and I looked at the coffee that they had and I chose one that had a certain roaster that I knew and was mm. excited about, had a certain machine that I thought was would be really fun to work on, but I knew I knew that manufacturer and I knew they made really cool machines and uh, I you know, I used all those signals. Signals quite frankly that I still I still use when I go to new cities and I have to find coffee shops. Mm. Um, I did it that way. Yeah. This is this might not be as fully related, but it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's like a big personal curiosity. When it comes to like espresso machines and mm. your ability to just kinda of know, is it by like brand or mm -hmm. how do you how do you, how can you tell like if I were to go into a shop and look at the machine, would I be able mm -hmm. to discern whether the espresso would taste um, arguably better or not based no, on the machine? Not really. Uh, I wish I wish the answer was yes. Okay, the answer is a soft yes. There are certain brands of espresso machines that are, are, honestly, they're just more expensive and they are within the intel of the industry, the brands that produce better coffee. What does that mean? Like, there's a little bit too much emphasis in the coffee industry on equipment. These are all signals. These are all signals people use to discern what the priorities and orientations of a business are, of a team is, of a person is. And so they're not irrelevant. Those signals aren't always reliable, but they are much of the time. When you would walk into a location and you would see a La Marzocco machine, certainly in early days of specialty coffee, uh, turn of the century, you know, into the mid-2000s, when you saw that at La Marzocco, you were like, this is a third-grade coffee shop. And that would actually be pretty reliable. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, there's many more manufacturers. 
What's important about an espresso machine? Well, historically speaking, it's that the temperature was accurate and consistent. And that, that's not something to take for granted. Before modern you know, temperature control technology of, of PIDs, um, which essentially just stabilize the swings in temperature as the heating element goes on or off, a mathematical equation that flattens it um, by pulsing that element. That the pressure is consistent, that the water dispersion, which is still not perfect, but better than it used to be, is even across your coffee bed. That's what's important, those three things. There are many machines that can do that. Nowadays, there's many manufacturers. If I'm working in my belief, and there are people that are going to disagree with me, but if you're working on a Simonelli or a Lamarzoco or a San Remo, like it's all now the technology is such that they're quite frankly all the same. The, the one thing that's going to change a little bit is how quickly the water pressure ramps up. That can be very important. But many of them know that and have some mechanisms to control it. So it is less relevant now. But if you want to look at this sector of the coffee industry that is specialty coffee and look at that list of machine manufacturers, Lamazoko, Simonelli, Sineso, San Remo, Slayer, you know, you if you see any of those machines, chances are that this place either does or, and this is an important distinction, but still create this category, wants to have good coffee or engage with what we call specialty coffee. It is a commitment because on the one hand, some people might just be paying for aesthetic because they do have very different aesthetic profiles. They're like pieces of furniture, these things. But they're very expensive. When you're starting a business and you want to buy one of these machines and your price tag ranges from twenty to $40,000. Oh. You know, when we started Boxcar, we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> like I, I think about how much we built that first location for. We're still paying for it because we're still having to renovate the work, you know, the work that that small of a budget produces. Um, but we, even back then, invested in an ex relatively not as expensive as some of our machines now because we use Keys van der Westen machines now at many of our locations. But that's a that's high price tag. And so why would you pay that much money? Because people tell you that you should, if you want to be part of this club, especially the coffee club. You know, that's that's important. That's that kind of tribal thinking is drives a, a lot of action, um, many decisions within this industry. Love for people to engage with what those actions mean and think for themselves, but that's that's just the case in any industry, right? There's a lot of inheritance that exists. Some of it's very good and important and not thought about, actually. And some of it's bad and is uh, overvalued. I think machinery and, and, and caring so much about which machine and why. Um, the why maybe is still important, but the because it's explanatory in terms of the mechanisms that produce coffee. Mm -hmm. But you can't rely on it anymore. There was a time that where I believe you could more. I think back when I lived in Vancouver in the, in the short years after that, um, I think that back then, you took it really seriously. Being part of that specialty coffee club was, it was a small group. And I think what motivated it was really principle-based. 
this idea of specialty coffee was quite countercultural. It was going against what was popular, what was established. Specialty coffee is much more mainstream now. And the problem and the concern is that it is also somewhat for sale. You've seen so many enormous acquisitions and mergers within the coffee industry. When you look at who owns what company in the world, it's striking at how much consolidation exists. It's beyond what anyone imagines. And we, when we talk about these handmade in Italy espresso machines, if you look at the map in 2019 in terms of who owns what company, these aren't small companies anymore. These are large companies. I won't always criticize large companies. Not all large companies are bad, but many of them aren't great. They're certainly not great for the artisanal craft. This stuff is inherently often not profitable. And what profits very, very large consolidated companies is often profit. So there's this reckoning happening, or that will happen in the coffee industry at the moment, where we're gonna have to confront these values and how they reconcile with the global structure of the coffee industry. It's, a, it's an interesting moment, mm -hmm. I think. Yes, it's, I, I've, I haven't particularly looked deep into, I guess, like the machinery part of the coffee industry, but from um, my prior life when I was an investor, I, my targets were those kinds of companies where mm -hmm. it was the large consolidators that no one really knew, but you knew who they were and mm -hmm. they practically owned, you know, 80% market share in practically every other industry and it's true it's, it's very funny that you you mentioned that it just kind of popped into my mind about how like you know people don't realize that every part of an airplane is made by one company that yeah. just happens to own 150 mm. other companies yeah i mean so i mean it's, it's not just coffee right so many yeah so many industries are are, are subject to that kind of merger and acquisition mm -hmm. culture at this moment but coffee is coffee specialty coffee is because coffee has always been Right. <laughs> Not as well. I mean, for much of its history, has been big business. But specialty coffee was a purposeful, intentional, and explicit reaction to that. And so for specialty coffee to now be involved in that very same culture, if you told me that Nestle would own Blue Bottle 10 years ago, I wouldn't believe it. There's no chance. The contradiction would be too profound. But we're having to confront that now. Another reason why that's important is because what you were saying earlier is that we used to rely on these signals. People would go into a place and see whatever, pipe fittings and reclaimed wood, and Edison bulbs and a Lamar's open machine, certain roasters, and they'd say, this is a specialty coffee place. And I'm going to subject that place to the same standards, high standards of specialty coffee that I would subject any place to. That's not reliable, in part, for many reasons, but in part because the players that have entered the industry within specialty coffee have now entered for different reasons. It's not someone who's worked within specialty coffee that has obsessed over it, that has uh, considers themselves you know, a craftsperson, that considers themselves countercultural. And I'm not saying that we all need to be that, but... These were more defined boundaries that existed before. 
now when you look at especially coffee shops that have opened in Toronto, you have it just shows that aspects of specialty coffee are in fact for sale. You have places opening in huge multinational clothing stores, you know, that are specialty coffee. Some people would maybe consider that a kind of democratization of specialty coffee, but there's something I think potentially more nefarious in that. Um, in the very least, let me say this, that more than that being a concern, because that might not be a bad thing necessarily, but the problem is the lack of discourse within the industry. There is very little good writing in coffee. There is very little good high quality difficult conversation in coffee. You see much of the, so the conversations around social consciousness exist around inclusivity, which is really important and coffee had historically failed to do. I mean, coffee had been considered, especially coffee had been considered, I, you know, I, I characterize it like a countercultural thing, but it was often like a bougie white thing for a long time associated with, quite frankly, what it tried to separate itself from, which was Starbucks. It was just a different package. The coffee industry, especially the coffee industry, has taken a very different direction now. And any field that is healthy has to be very self-critical. And it has to have mechanisms built in of self-criticism. That's not any field, that's anything. I mean, our shops, an individual, I'm training a barista on our team. Self-criticism is incredibly important. When an entire field, the kind of blight of a lack of intelligent, reflective, and critical discourse that isn't petty, right? It's not like Twitter trolling, but, but serious thinking and contemplation, an ability and willingness to be challenged and to challenge other people. There's a lot of... Uh, the, the, the move, you see this in the coffee industry a lot. Uh, this has preoccupied my thinking quite a bit. Recently, you saw, when I got into coffee, it was all about forums and blogs. That's where discourse existed. And there were people you'd follow, and they would be people who were, you know, these kind of somewhat opinionated or pugnacious um, or polemic writers. And they were very always critical of the coffee industry and what other people were doing. And there was a high degree of sanctimony and people would criticize them for that. And they were divisive. And, and that to me was healthy. I didn't like how that, how those voices were centralized. Fair enough. And perhaps at the, uh, you know, as social media proliferated, there was an opportunity to add more voices. But we lost a lot as those blogs disappeared. And there's so few of them now. Hmm. There are so few of them. Some of these people are still involved in the coffee industry, um, but they've, you know, some of them have gone from writing really insightful blogs to doing reviews on YouTube. And are they enjoyable to watch? Yeah, they are. Do they contribute to a particular sensibility and contemplation with the industry that's going to shape how we engage with our field? No. And that's a serious loss. So there's a vacuum, I think, in this moment. I don't know what's going to fill it. <laughs> Obviously, I'm interested in that. Obviously, I, I, I care about a 
degree of journalistic integrity. I care about quality of writing. Um, I care about a degree of engagement. I don't know what my role in that is. I'm obviously still trying to figure that out. Um, there's part of me that wants to stay satisfied with my contribution being just focusing on my company, not being so discursive as to criticize a thing and then be part of that problem by neglecting the a thing that is my contribution necessarily to that industry. But but I think there's there's a lot more to do now at this moment. But it involves it involves some kind of format, right? It doesn't mm. exist. And you know, right now you're you know you've been in the coffee industry for about five years. Uh, no. or, sorry, like you've ran Boxcar for about five yeah, years. Boxcar's been six years. Six years. Me, yeah. yeah, and so you know to move into that, if I were to kind of categorize it as you know putting your hat in the ring and actually being the man in the arena as you become the owner of your own coffee mm. shop in this industry, what was that process like when you, you know, go from the idea of I would like to own my own. Mm-hmm. coffee shop to eventually getting three other folks to be your partners and yeah the four of you deciding let's launch something it didn't really go that way at all in no. fact so at the time i was consulting for i was roasting coffee and i was uh, i was consulting for businesses so i helped design cafes train their staff build their coffee programs as a consultant you're really working for someone else People say that people say this within many other fields. We we have a very robust gig economy at the at the moment, right? That since I started Boxcar has grown immensely. And I think one of the misconceptions about that gig economy, one of the more propagandistic claims of proponents of the gig economy, which are usually people invested in perpetuating that economy, is that you can be your own boss. That's what people say. It's not, it's a rarely true. In fact, you're often working for somebody. When I had clients, I was working for them. Could I make my own hours? Sometimes, but you had to work by their hours, right? I had to work a lot more and a lot harder. It's not always true. It's, I think that's a misconception. I enjoyed consulting. I was young. I, you know, I was young to be like flexing that kind of authority. Um, and so I think I enjoyed the esteem of it. I enjoyed the challenges. Every project was different. But I was always working ultimately for someone else still, even as a consultant. I was working for their vision, what they wanted to manifest, what they wanted to accomplish, what they wanted to contribute. Oftentimes, that was at odds with my values, what I wanted to, to contribute. I've had to wrestle with that idea because... You know, as we get into talking about me having my my own business, which isn't my own business because I have business partners, but as we get into talking being an owner, it's important as well to to remember that these aren't always it's not always up to you, right? Mm-hmm. In any case, I was consulting at the time and. I was ready at that moment. I had enough of a defined idea of what I wanted Toronto's coffee industry to have that it didn't have. What I, as a coffee lover, as a as someone who engaged and lived within the industry, uh, the Toronto coffee industry, what I wanted to exist. Consulting wasn't creating these things as much to the degree that I wanted it to. 
And one day, one of my business partners, who uh, my future business partners at the time, that I knew through a friend of a friend, approached me on the street, literally walking out of a grocery store. And he's just like, hey, my friends and I, you know, two, two of them, we want to start this, this cafe bar uh, idea and uh, wondering if you could help us out. And I was like, oh, shit, great. Another, another group of people that has no relationship with coffee, that, that don't know what they're doing, that want to start a, a cafe. I'm like, yeah, sure, as a favor, like, I'll sit down with you and chat through your, through your idea. So I went to meet with them, and uh, um, they talked about this idea of, like, a wine bar and a, and a, and a coffee shop. And I loved it. I loved that idea. I loved wine at the time, and, and I, I was a beer drinker and a whiskey drinker, and they wanted to, to have a, a, a beer, wine, whiskey, and coffee shop. And these things are incredibly similar in so many ways. I, all the things that, that drive my motivation in coffee exist within these other beverage categories. And in wanting and desiring to elevate coffee in the coffee industry and coffee culture, of course, putting coffee alongside these other beverage categories, I thought could help coffee as well. To build coffee menus that were, and this would be my contribution, to build coffee menus and succeed at building coffee menus, because it's not easy to, to, to execute, that had many coffees on it that express origin and difference, and difference in flavor profile, sensor experience, um, to highlight producers, to highlight variables that would affect that sensor experience alongside a wine list that would do literally the exact same thing it was exciting. And so I very quickly bought in. I started, you know, kind of agreed to consult with them. And then as the project started to develop, I, we realized that the way I would end up working with that business um, would necessarily mean that I was, for, that, for the budget we were working within and for how intensively we wanted to engage with this project and for how much I would want to invest myself into it, it would have to be a partnership. So that's how, that's how, in a weird way, that's how actually being an owner of Boxcar started. Hmm. So it wasn't It wasn't like, oh, I have this idea and I need to execute and find people to, to buy in. I got pulled into a different project and kind of owned it. <laughs> and, and then, again, as the programs developed, I, it became more and more exciting. Years later, uh, you know, maybe two years later, I got really immersed in wine culture and the wine industry here in the city and actually to the neglect of the coffee program at the time i got like utterly absorbed with wine what's interesting is that you hear people in the coffee industry try, try to uh build parallels similarities uh between wine and coffee in in an opportunity to, to elevate coffee you know they try to make coffee sound as as a steam filled as, as as wine is Wine has a lot of, people will spend a lot of money on a glass of wine. Um, wine is held within high esteem within, you know, in terms of social standing. If you work in the wine industry, you're a sommelier versus being a barista. <laughs> you're regarded differently. We want we wanted to elevate coffee to that level. And so you hear people make these, you know, draw these parallels. But... Over time, it got tired, I think. I think many people started to question the validity of those, of those analogies. Um, after studying wine, I realized that the similarities between coffee and wine ran so much deeper than anyone had afforded 
those two categories. They are so much more similar. Whether you're talking about whether you're talking about the agronomy, you're talking about um, sorry, what, what's agronomy? So it's like this, the, the science of, of cultivation uh-huh. um, at origin. Soil science, uh, pruning, um, ripeness or phenolic ripeness in terms of how the seeds and the skins ripen, separate from just the sugars. Whether you're talking about fermentation, people don't think about coffee as a fermented product. People think about, what, what do you think about when you hear ferment? You think about kimchi. Kimchi, yeah, totally. Kimchi, pickles, wine, any alcohol, right? Um, you don't think of coffee, but coffee is a fermented product. And that fermentation is categorically influential in terms of what that coffee ends up tasting like. Fermentation is exciting. It's this whole variable that no one had talked about. This is more recent as well. We're talking only as of the last couple of years that the coffee industry has started to engage with the implications of fermentation in terms of coffee flavor and aroma. What yeast strains, what bacteria are doing the fermentation, as with beer or wine or anything, completely changed the taste and aromatic profile. It's wild. You have terms in coffee now like carbonic maceration and anaerobic fermentation. Terms that are wine terms that, that are now applied to coffee that we at Boxcar has served many have served many coffees that are fermented that way. There's, there's, it's, it's, it's really interesting to be driven by a kind of philosophical likeness with regards to beverage categories. And for after that project's inception to now over these six years, for that to be honestly and sometimes not always, but sometimes by pure luck. More rooted, more substantiated and corroborated by instances of, of, of utter likeness, right? I think that's really fun. <laughs> I think that's really cool. And as you as you get deeper into you know learning about coffee, learning about wine, mm-hmm. it. I'm curious. Did you? Because right now, Boxcar isn't a coffee roaster. Right. No. And I'm curious, you know, given the knowledge and how much you enjoy learning the whole process um, from, like, you know, the start to the end. Mm-hmm. Why you didn't choose to become a roaster um, of coffee beans as well to keep the control somewhat in within the company? For sure. I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but that might be changing in the very near future. But, oh. but I will say this, that the whole project of Boxcar in terms of creating a menu that looked like a wine menu started for a few reasons, right? Like I was saying earlier, when we started Boxcar, one of my visions and, and, and what I, one, of the, one of the things that I wanted to bring to the coffee industry was highlighting people who are doing really important work. Roasters that had been roasting for already five to 10 years that had built, done the very difficult work of building long-term relationships with producers that were paying a lot more, that were experimenting, taking risks by experimenting with lots, with things like processing, things like fermentation, and highlighting them because it didn't exist. When those things don't exist within a field, within a sect of food culture in a place, what is the standard by which anyone is measuring? What is good, right? 
I wanted Boxcar to be our contribution in helping to set those standards by highlighting people around the world, right? Because our, our, our menu is international. We're bringing roasters from Scandinavia, from continental Europe, uh, from the US, and, and highlighting them. That's at odds with roasting. Number one, because we couldn't, that would mean that we weren't focusing on the retail operation. Our program was ambitious. We started by having three to four pourovers on the menu. People got really alienated. The general public got pretty alienated by pourovers over the last 10 years because they were shit. <laughs> because everyone put pourovers on their menu and no one took the time to really calibrate those recipes, to really choose those coffees smartly, and to engage with why you'd be doing pourovers at all. And so pourovers were more expensive, took longer, and tasted worse. So why in the world would anyone order them? We had the difficult job because by the time we started Boxcar in 2014, that, a lot of that damage had been done of trying to get buy-in again on pour-overs because pour-overs were the only way to build a coffee menu that was variegated, that could be by the cup coffee that highlighted really interesting coffees that were different, that you wouldn't want to put on batch brew or espresso, that you treated like a glass of wine, you know, that had such flavor complexity that you'd want to sit with. And that there was variety that was important because that variety would show, again, the difference that existed uh, of different expressions of coffee. And so, okay, we had to get buy-in again. We had to do that really well. That's why I was I obsessed for our first few years so intensively over that every cup was calibrated well. It took me so long after we opened Boxcar to take a day off because I was so paranoid that if I wasn't there to like test the recipes that a bad cup would go out. Many bad cups have gone out. This, you know, you, you have to be somewhat pragmatic, pragmatic about it. We try to limit that as much as possible. We have an amazing team now and, that I have faith in. But in the beginning, I was so scared because I was shouldering the weight of, of the buy-in that we had lost within the industry with pour-overs you know with buy the cup coffee in general and that was our only way that was such an anchor to that program we opened with coffee flights you'd get three pour over side by side it was suicide almost you know like trying to run a business and and make three pour overs for a simple guest at a time efficiently you know without them waiting 20 minutes well we did it struggled but we did it yeah that's as i'm imagining it it the logistics of it just at that time to so do it right. It's really difficult, but you build systems, right? Right. You build systems and you, and I spent a lot of time thinking, much of my time before Boxcar, thinking about what that could look like, mm. practicing recipes, thinking about workflow so that when the project of Boxcar came, I could try to integrate that into the, you know, confront the uh, practicality, the reality of putting that into, into a service. And it, at times it paid off, and at times it didn't, and we, we changed, we adapted, constantly changing. Our coffee program is always, always, always evolving because of that. But but that was a really important aspect of our program, you know, offering by the cup coffees. Mm. And so that all comes back again to this likening coffee to these other beverage categories and this, tr- this deep-seated belief that there was fundamental, foundational, not contrived, you know, likeness between these beverage categories. That the thing that made any of these beverage categories interesting, exciting, gave them esteem, could be lended to the other. 
I still believe that to this day, and I believe it way more again after studying wine very intensively, mm. doing the sommelier courses that I did over those years. Um, that's that's really fun. And on on this journey of you know being a co-owner of a business, what are, are there kind of um, inflection points or like major obstacles that you know resonate in your mind as like oh, yeah, there was there was that time when you guys almost like felt like giving up or wonder like is this actually going to work in like the first two years of the lease that you signed there was, there was so many times no there's so many times there's times all, all the time to this day yeah but, but if you want to focus on you know, again i I'm, I'm a very self-critical person so i it can be cumbersome to impose that degree of criticism and um you know i'd be lying if i said that that that, that wasn't then at times feel insurmountable. You pull yourself out of that mentality, of course, because you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were many moments like that. I think there were a few that I, I could highlight, um, and they came they come in waves, and they they're, they're not singular moments, but last for short periods of time. Um, you know, one of them was running a business. I I will say I started you know we started this business with. We had just four partners, just three other people. Partnerships are difficult. Oh, I can imagine it's a mar- as a four-way marriage of some sort. Absolutely, and we're all very different people. And at our best moments, we use our individual competencies and capacities, our different dispositions, or different ways of relating to one another and relating to the world to gain perspective and apply perspective and check ourselves and. Exercise a degree of diplomacy and democracy in what we do. That's at our best moments. Yeah, at our worst moments, we want to kill each other. At our worst moments, we want to opt out. At our worst moments, we question why we're there to begin with. That exists. You know, it exists when you get different people together. I will say, I like, I will sit here and say, I'm proud of all of our ability. They have to tolerate me as well. I'm not easy to work with. <laughs> I'm not. I have very vocal standards, you know, of operation. I I have a degree of idealism that I don't shake easily. I have a very specific worldview that I impose and import into almost everything that I do. And if your worldview is different, that can be really challenging. And so, and on the other hand, you know, these these three other people, these aren't people, these aren't industry people. These aren't people that worked in coffee. And so you can imagine that there were moments where the direction that we took was contentious. You know, two of my other business partners are much more business-minded in the sense of expansion, you know? And it was if it was up to me, there's a chance that boxcar might still be you know two locations because i tend to just put my head down and and want to perfect the thing that at times i will say i believe that at times and not not always i'm really proud of where we've ended up we have an amazing team you know we have amazing people that work for us i I spend a, a lot of my time now cultivating that team i spend a lot of time working with people trying to keep them motivated, inspired, help give them purpose, all the while looking for purpose myself, of course, and and, and checking that. But 
those people have all, haven't always been there. We haven't always had teams that, that were motivated and inspired. And sometimes that was reflective of our own actions, of us not being there prematurely because we were growing, because we had to build something else, because we had a new project. And that, that was really hard for me, you know? It's, when you do something with a degree of integrity and craft, there's a necessary amount of obsessing over details that contradicts multiplication, <laughs> that contra can contradict expansion. And I would say necessarily contradicts it for a short time. I think every time we open a new place, it's challenging. And then, you know, you catch up. You work hard to catch <laughs> up. And we and I think we have. I, I, I'm, I'm, again, I think I'm really proud of the programs we have at this moment. Um, obviously, we have a place in another province right now and that is mind-boggling. Um, that was a scary experience in many ways. A new province. I, I can't be there. I can just show up to fix something, to taste things, to... It keep people motivated. We are so lucky that we just have like the most incredible team out there. We just found awesome people and who are motivated and inspired, believe in what we're doing, you know, champion it. That's huge. That's huge. But anyway, digression. Partnerships. That that has been really challenging. We have different skills, we really do. We do different things. I do much of the operational stuff, the program stuff. I work with staff. I do much of the HR. Uh, and then of course, you know, I do much of the educating for the programs. I have another partner who, honestly, because of our six year history, pretty much full-time builds and designs. You know, he's not really involved with the day-to-day -day operations of the business. He's made a full-time ownership position, operating position in building new locations, designing new locations, renovating locations that exist without interruption. It's kind of wild, right? Um, so, but I mean, in terms of inflection points, there have been a few where those different worldviews and those different priorities um, have been at odds with each other. And, and, and caused very tense, difficult times. And again, I will say, I, I, I am a little bit proud of this, of our ability to work through those, because I think that there are many other partnerships in the world that wouldn't or haven't made it through those times. Right. Mm -hmm. Is there one you'd like to share uh, in more detail, or? Um, that's a good question, that's a difficult question. Uh, Hey, listen, without a doubt, I mean, we talked already about the Harborfront one. Right. That was extremely difficult. The problem is that, and this is a self-criticism, that you personalize failures. And when you personalize failures, you, without enough perspective, look for other people to blame for them. Because you feel like there is injustice done to you and to your vision and to your accomplishments and to your esteem. And so when Harborfront wasn't what we thought it, it should be, what I thought it should be, it was busy because it's always busy down there in the summertime. It doesn't matter. And so if your goal is to just make money, that place can make money in the summer. Now, it's very slow in the winter, and that's a, that became a whole other challenge of 
wildly vacillating business levels. Now, a place that loses tens of thousands of dollars a month. How do you stomach that? Oh, yeah, well, it was. it's not about how you stomach it. It's about how you make it through it in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not really smart and if you don't foresee that and predict it, because we opened in the summer, what happens if that money dries up? Mm. That's really challenging. Those are challenging moments. Those test the constitution of many people, and certainly business owners, but also tests your team, your team's ability to stay motivated and buy into what you're doing. It's another problem. When a place isn't busy, when a place isn't successful, when a place doesn't get esteem within the industry, you also have to confront not just your own motivations and failures, but the fact that you can watch in real time your team's motivation and buy into what you're doing decline. That declivity is very difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So in those moments, um, things can become personal. In those moments, you can look at the fact that we're expanding at the rate that we are and that it's outpacing our ability to control quality, you know, to control motivation, to control standards. And you look for people to blame. And I mean, hell, at that moment, we opened within three years. This was a very difficult three years, filled with a lot of misery, I'll admit it. Many successes and happy moments, but, but, but a whole lot of misery because we opened our first location, second location, third and fourth within the first three years, pretty much. And we Harborfront location came with a patio bar. Because the whole deal with Harborfront is, you know, you guys can go into this space, made a really fair rent that was a revenue share of sorts, so that we could survive the winter to a degree. And but it came with a whole other patio bar. It's called the slip. And we had to run that. And that was a 400 seat patio bar restaurant in a tourist location. It's also on the harbor. Both of these things opened at the same time. It was, it was miserable. It was really challenging. And the problem is you are, you know, you have people with your hand down drains trying to fish out clogs and uh, you're understaffed and you have people, guests complaining and complaining and you have three other locations that you're not paying attention to. It was really hard. And again, so you look for people to blame. <laughs> uh, as for me, because I was in the coffee industry before and because this project was such a cultural project and because I kind of shouldered the weight of influencing coffee culture, of, of getting buy-in back from more people, the general public, in terms of specialty coffee, towards how coffee would be conceived of. Failure isn't just business. It's not just your bank account. It's, it's so much more personal than that. And so failure became personal for more reasons than one. And, and so you turn and you look to like, who to blame? <laughs> who isn't contributing? You know, why, what, who, who, is, who is seeking and facilitating expansion without 
contributing to making sure that those standards are as good. Ultimately, of course, I have to shoulder an equal amount of blame. There's always an equal partner when these decisions are made, you know? So I, you gain some perspective over time. <laughs> but but that, that was a really hard moment. That was a really hard moment for us, mm. for sure. Yeah, no, and uh, thanks for sharing that. That's yeah. when you said though, when like when you're also like you know, during the hard times, like in moments of self criticism, you tend to sometimes you know want to blame others. Do you ever, do you ever kind of go into positions where you sometimes end up blaming the market for, sometimes thinking like, well, why can't you understand? Yeah, this? no, no, I don't. Yeah, actually, uh, I'll tell you why. What is the market? What is it? It's these people, right? Right? Are you gonna blame people? Like, am I gonna blame people for not buying into specialty coffee? I might get frustrated with them at times. Yeah, right. for sure, fair. But who are who's influencing their behavior? Hmm. People use the word the market a lot. I hate the word because it completely effaces, it completely uh, eviscerates responsibility, hmm. agency, accountability. Because it's this abstract idea of market. We in especially the coffee industry have to take responsibility. And if we're going to blame people, so for example, if we want to engage with some criticism, if we want to facilitate it, we're going to just say like, ah, these people, they have such shitty taste. They don't know what good coffee is. They have no idea how to... Like, who's convincing them of what? No one just decides to drink coffee. Quite frankly, human beings don't like the taste of coffee, certainly when they're young. It's an acquired flavor. So is wine and beer and many other things. Many of these tastes are acquired. Where are they acquired from? There are many cultural practices that facilitate how people develop taste. What the industry does too much, especially the coffee industry, is blame other people for for facilitating certain tastes or not caring enough about this or that without doing the work of taste-making themselves. Because that is work that necessarily has to be done. Especially because we are trying to facilitate tastes in a direction that is unconventional. That goes against what's established. The power that you know, when we blame people, we blame people like, I will blame some people. I'll blame people for bad behavior, for bad practices. I will blame people for, I won't blame people for burning coffee, for over-roasting coffee. If you want to do that, go for it. You know, there's a market for that in the sense that people are demanding it, that people want it. There are going to be people who do it, but don't do that and try to claim that you are ethically sourcing that you are have transparency within your supply chain, that you don't show photos of farmers and claim that, you know, this is this or that. Don't um, claim yourself to be craft coffee. I think that those things bother me because it's confusing, utterly. And you see, you know, the to name drop the Starbucks and the Second Cups of the World and the Tim Hortons, you see that location they just opened, the specialty location really take signals from, from the specialty community because the specialty community has, in fact, built a demand for certain kinds of coffee. So you see them introduce flat whites. You know, you see them try to engage with latte art a little bit. 
You see them use certain equipment in these flagship locations. But that's them trying to enter this sector of the market. There is a lot that people will be judged by in terms of behavior. Specialty coffee should exist with standards that we live by, that we work by. Standards of, again, transparency. So much of, of, of what third wave coffee was about was some connection to origin. You know, It was moving away from blends and towards single origin coffees. Why would you do that? You can probably, with coffee that's not very good, you can make a better taste than coffee if you blend it. Oh, really? Is that, is that the kind of knowledge in the industry too? I don't know if I would say that's the knowledge, but if you look at convention, like if you look at why are all the Italian espressos blended, if you take at concentration any one single flavor profile, and especially if it's not amazing, <laughs> you know, if it's not really high quality coffee, which is to say that it is picked ripe, that um, it's dried properly, that it isn't too old, so it doesn't have that papery cardboard taste, that it's not roasted too black, you know, too dark, meaning that it's bitter, not roasted too light, meaning that it's grassy or tastes like hay and sour, but that it's sugary, that it expresses as much complexity in its flavor profile as possible. If you have any one of those characteristics and you let that saliently shine through at the concentration of, you know, an espresso, which is almost 10 times more concentrated than a drip coffee, it's going to be 10 times more unpleasant if there's any unpleasantness in it. So if you blend... And there's, you know, there's different kinds of uh, defects in flavor. And you blend across many coffees. You're going to dampen mm -hmm. those effects. So you can make it just taste more palatable. Mm -hmm. It just goes utterly in contradiction with what motivates like, what we consider a good coffee. Mm -hmm. To us, any good coffee is more expensive because it is more expensive to produce good coffee. It's not because we like expensive coffee. There's many coffees that I wish so badly were cheaper because I want to serve them because I'm excited by them because I think they're so delicious. You know, we've been successful at throwing on pour over some really special coffees that we charge $12 a cup. And I'm super happy to say that for Toronto that, that, that we sell out of them, which is amazing. But those are coffees that aren't expensive because, because they have a pretty bottle, you know, because they have really good branding. Um, they're expensive because... They're really difficult to produce. Okay, some of them are expensive because the demand's high. That's true. And the supply is low. That's true. But much of the time, the supply is low. <laughs> it's very supply-driven. Um, so you look at varieties of coffee like geisha, which go for a lot of money. You know, you, you're, we're in the thousands of dollars per pound green, and you can add a multiplier on that for the retail price. We served some geishas, not, not those super, super expensive ones, but some from the same farms. And um, geisha is notoriously difficult. It's a very low, it's like Pinot Noir in, in wine. It's low yielding. It's very finicky. It's affected by changes in climate. It's affected by disease really easily. It is uh, really affected by pruning, by slope. It can be affected by soil types. It's really hard. In fact, for the longest time, geisha wasn't discovered as a variety that was worth producing because it was grown at too low of an altitude. And it wasn't until the Panamanian farm planted it really high in altitude that it, you know, it put them at the bottom of the list of the best of Panama competition for coffee to the top. Wow. Literally over a year. 
they climbed to the top. It's pretty incredible. But again, this is a really difficult product. And so it's expensive, right? Mm -hmm. If someone were to like ask you, you know, if I want to get to the level of you know, your competence and coffee knowledge, like, you know, you consulted for a lot of coffee shops before you're getting the opportunity of boxcar, but to build that kind of competence, it's not like, you know, there's a four year bachelor's degree mm-hmm. in coffee. Like how, mm-hmm. how would someone, how, how would you recommend someone develop the knowledge uh, necessary aside from just being a barista for hours and hours and hours? This is super, it's a very good question. It's, an, a really, it's a really important question because what it does is, is peel back some of the systemic challenges that exist within the coffee industry um, with regards to what standards are being set, how, how information is being disseminated. You know, we just talked about some larger companies with very deep marketing pockets. You know, and, and their ability to influence perception and standards. You know, you saw Tim Hortons go from having their regular coffee to mo- actively marketing dark roast. They went to dark roast from being less dark roast. Why? Who's influencing why dark roast would be a smarter move for that company? The question is, who's setting the standards in terms of what's good in coffee to begin with outside of an individual shop? If you go into many quote-unquote specialty coffee shops, and you ask the barista there questions about coffee, ask them why soil is important, ask them what fermentation's effect on coffee is, ask them why altitude is on the bag of every single retail coffee on their shelves, ask them what different varieties of coffee, like Bourbon and Couture versus Pacamara and Margarita taste. They're not going to know. That's the problem. That's a huge problem. These are the people that are supposed to be the champions within the tiny subsect of the coffee industry that we are. They're supposed to be the authorities on this. And they're the people that work every day in coffee. Who's setting the standard for what is an acceptable amount of knowledge, of competency, of skill, before someone self-identifies as a professional within this industry? No one. (laughs) Not many people. The SCA, Specialty Coffee Association, has obviously spent a many resources and a lot of time on this and so they have a full course mm-hmm. but it's not like this internationally recognized standard it is you know what like it is more now than ever but it's not like a wholly standardized program mm-hmm. you know and so this i don't have great answers to that question and that's mm-hmm. extremely problematic in the future we're working on, on more educational courses yeah um we're working on that much more um but what people should do because that was your question i don't want to just leave them with nothing (laughs) if you're interested (laughs) there's so on the other side of it um the for all of the lamenting i i do about what the internet age what social media has done you know all the coffee industry's main medium is instagram And it's extremely problematic because Instagram is not a good place for long form exposition or criticism or dialogue. And so, okay, it looks pretty. It's nice. You know, it, it, it involves a lot of, uh, back padding, handshaking, applause. Does not involve criticism. 
So you have to find where that exists. You have to, so th there's a couple organizations that have done a good job at this. There are books that exist. There are books like James Hoffman's Coffee Atlas, oh, yeah. um, which is good. It gives you a really good overview on coffee in general. It goes through different regions, but it also goes through some equipment, some methodology. Um, James Hoffman's been, you know, honestly, one of the most important people in the coffee industry in the world. One of the best champions for specialty coffee. And he's one of the more real people in the industry <laughs> as well with regards to his motivations and interests and, again, his reflectiveness. Uh, his, his was one of the blogs, uh, Jim Seven, that I lamented the loss of as he transitioned more to YouTube. But he does he still does important work. Um, let's see, we have Barista Hustle. Barista Hustle is um, from uh, an Australian company. Uh, it's one of the more famous people, Matt Perger, one of the more uh, famous people in, in coffee, a relatively young guy who started this really educational forum. It started as a Facebook group and it grew into now like a whole uh, uh, set of courses, a whole curriculum based on a lot of research. Um, I've, I've vetted a lot of it. Many of our staff go through it, in fact, because it's that good. Um, and anyone can take it. It's not super cheap, but it's not super expensive. Um, and online, you can learn like a serious amount about coffee that if you internalize that knowledge, would put you in a really good place uh, with regards to your skills. Where it lacks is actually um, if you want to learn about origin, which obviously for me is like one of the more motivating, inspiring, and, and, and interesting fields to kind of build a subfields to build a scaffolding of knowledge within. It's what motivates why doing the kind of mechanical stuff, the craft, is, is interesting to begin with. It lacks there, but but if you want to learn about him, many young coffee people do, and people and I say young as in like their skills, not their age. Um, when, when, when people are in their kind of nascent coffee years and they're, they want to learn about coffee, they're so excited about latte art and, 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 and how to tamp and stuff like that. And, um, it teaches very thorough theory about these things and uh, very worthwhile. So I would definitely point people in that direction. We also live in the YouTube age and, and YouTube is full of nonsense, but it's also full of instructional videos. That's so valuable. It's just free education. You have to go. You have to find the stuff that's credible. But but if you want to learn a specific skill, you can, quite frankly, in anything, <laughs> you can learn it on YouTube to a degree. Yeah. And and, and people should exploit that because it's again it's free education. Um, so I, I would say those three areas are, are are great. But but I would push people to go into find coffee shops of, with programs that are well thought out. And it's not easy. I admit. Find coffee shops with programs that are well thought out and engage baristas, <laughs> challenge them. Um, baristas get complacent because I think many baristas, when they get motivated by a program, they want to share that knowledge. They want people to come in and ask them about it. But obviously, you know, the percentage of Americanos and lattes we make versus the number of pour overs, it's kind of incomparable. Like we make obviously more of the former. But our teams I know are, are waiting for to come in and, and, and ask questions and be inquisitive and I would hope there's explicit training not to patronize or make people feel dumb and to cultivate, to pander to people who are just have a glimmer of interest 
and motivation. And it happens all the time. People come to the bar and like, oh, what's that? Like, what are you doing? You know, using a refractometer or making a pour over or um, just sipping many cups of different things. And, and people, people ask questions out of sheer curiosity. And I, I would definitely challenge every coffee shop to build standards and train their teams to, to really go to those people. Those are your opportunities to, to engage in conversation. Um, without being, again, too sententious or, or patronizing. Um, but share information, get people motivated and excited. Oh, awesome advice. Yeah. And as we kind of get to the final legs of our chat together, a question I like asking every guest is, um, if you had to think back to, say, like the 24, 23-year-old Alex, I think you would have, probably still been studying philosophy at that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If, thinking back on that, Alex, um, if you could give him any advice, what kind of advice would you like to give him? These questions are always extremely difficult is, yeah. <laughs> for me. I, oh, we don't have enough time to, to talk about the amount of advice that I would try to give. <laughs> try to me, but, but, but there are things that, that really stand out. Um, for sure. I think that, I, I, I think with regards to where I would pull esteem from as a person, expanding what that ego looked like, you know, way beyond the, the, the very narrow definition of self. I, if I look at myself over the, over the last 10 years, 15 years, going back to my 23-year-old self and looking at there is no manifestation singularly that I would go back and be like, I wish I had that back then. It is kind of the opposite of that singularity. It's the protean nature with which I would approach having whatever dispositional character I'd have in the future. It is an ability to, to embrace adaptability. I think that Back then, I, I don't have a personality that is incredibly characterful, you know? And I think back then, I didn't have that thing, oh, that's the guy that's good at this. Or that's the guy that's good at that. I would wear those hats sometimes. But I would also, because of how that would be, attract attention and, and lend esteem uh, and, and give you social, you know, points. I, I think that I... I was striving for that at times of my life early on. Where instead, as I started to develop and experience and mature, I think that remaining adaptable, wearing all of the hats that I could at any moment, when I look at Boxcar and I look at these projects and what I look at, I love doing now, and that one day I'm editing a podcast and the next day I'm photographing, and the next day I'm training a team and the next day I'm woodworking. I, I'm super lucky that I get to do that stuff. I'm, I'm unbelievably lucky. But I spent many years chasing these kind of avocations before I could turn them into a career, you know? That I could turn them into something that wasn't an internal, weren't internal reflections or, or wasn't hobby-like tinkering, but 
instead would manifest in building something that wasn't about me anymore you know it's about other people it's about our team it's about how they're inspired how they're engaged what they're working towards what their vision is how they relate to their work it's about people who come into our shops and how they experience our programs because that's how they experience our field it's how they experience their industry and it's what's going to end up with a farmer being paid you know something above the cost of production, which, you know, the commodity market is below at the point, at this point, which is crazy. There's, there's a lot you can do by being, but by not conceiving of the world within, you know, the silos of, of a preconceived industry and thinking about, you know, craft, thinking about vision, thinking about philosophy, thinking about ethics, thinking about humanity and importing that into projects. I, I think that can be extremely powerful and important. So I'd probably give some kind of lecture about that. <laughs> That's a solid one. And is there anything you wish we covered today that um, you didn't get a chance to share? Something that I wish we covered? No, I don't think so. I I don't know. I, I think that, I think you asked really good questions. <laughs> I think that, I think that, um, it's hard to know what to predict when you're doing interviews, you know, when you're on the when you're giving the interview. Um, but I I think that any interview that that makes you dig and pull out information, I think any interview that makes you a little bit uncomfortable is probably a good one. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Hope I did a good job with that one. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Alex, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your fascinating story with myself and my listeners. I really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Such an opportunity to be here. Thanks. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It, hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different, maybe challenging yourself, being courageous, who knows. But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast, and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com, and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content, but at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that, you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, everything will still be free. It's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees 
and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you